It's the time of year when we're all thinking about goals and priorities. Now is the time to plan your next trip. Whatever kind of travel fills you up, whether it's lounging on the beach, connecting with family and friends, or going on a foreign adventure, Expedia has the tools you need to plan a great trip. Download the Expedia app or visit Expedia.com to start planning. You do need to be a OneKey member to use price tracking. Signing up is easy and free. Expedia, made to travel. We've all been there. You have a question about your credit card, you call the number for help, and can't get a hold of anyone. If you only had a Discover card. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right, a real person. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Hi, I'm so glad you're here. The Covenant of Water is truly one of the most gripping, exquisite novels I have ever read. And I've been reading since I was three. It's my 101st book club pick. I'm so enthralled with this epic story. I think of it as a modern masterpiece. And now I'm excited for you to hear our captivating conversation with the brilliantly talented author, Dr. Abraham Verghese. What an honor to be with you. On this six-part podcast, we're diving into all 10 parts of The Covenant of Water. That is the best Bye Felicia moment I ever read. (laughs) We'll also hear from readers like you. What was the hard truth that you hope to convey in writing this book? Hmm. Oh, thank you for that very thoughtful question. Come along with me on a soulful, extraordinary journey through adventure, family secrets, medical mysteries, romance, and finally, the shimmering resilience of the human spirit. This is The Covenant of Water, the podcast. Welcome back, everybody, to our special series on my latest book club pick, The Covenant of Water. I thank you so much for being with us. I wanted this series to be uh, on Super Soul podcast because there is a spiritual lesson, I've been saying this, in almost every chapter of this book. The themes intersect with so many topics that we've talked about on Super Soul that it's one of the reasons why I felt such a strong connection to this novel. I have to tell you, this novel has opened me and um, made me feel more alive, more alert. Literally, when I walk into a space, I think of it, I think, how would Abraham Verghese describe this? I think of the imagery. I think of um, just how I have been interpreting life and how now I feel that the aperture for that has been opened in a way that I know will never close. I feel forever changed by this book. And so I am loving hearing your comments about the book also, because I know it's more than just a reading experience. For many of us, it's a life-altering experience, the covenant of water. And in this episode, Abraham Verghese and I are talking about parts five and six of the book. And like our other episodes, we're going to hear questions from our readers. But the reason why I wanted to do it is because we wanted to delve into the plot and the characters in a way that those of us who have read it can more deeply appreciate it. So a little reminder to everyone tuning in, please keep posting your thoughts on our Instagram at Oprah's Book Club page. I love, 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 love reading them. Also want to give a big shout out and thank you to all of you readers who have made this book a New York Times bestseller. <laughs> That's pretty nice, isn't it? It's beautiful. I know. And every every time you, every week when you look, look at the New York Times list and there you are on the bestsellers list, what does that feel like? I don't think I'll ever get used to it. It's, um, it's such a thrill. Mm-hmm. And we've talked about this at other times. I, I have this imposter syndrome. Mm-hmm. And, you know, maybe this isn't really me. And mm-hmm. when you were speaking just now, is she really talking about me? Yeah. And uh, I, mean, I don't think that's a bad thing. I, I don't think. think it's a bad thing either. I think because writing is such an isolated act, you know? You are so 
alone with yourself and your computer or your pen or however you're doing it. And it is only, uh, only when the rest of the world shows how they have received it that you can actually know how good it is. That's exactly it. I mean, I really didn't have the confidence to say I've written a masterpiece, mm -hmm. which, by the way, Gabriel Garcia Marquez said about a hundred years of solitude. He knew that he had done it. He'd done it, and yes. I'm, I'm, I'm envious of that kind of certainty. Um, I think I need the affirmation, and I'm especially awed in our conversations the last few days, where where there are interpretations that other, you know, people, other have. people are making. People come up with things that you had never thought of. <laughs> I've never thought about. I love it when you can get to have an aha about your own <laughs> story. I think that's wonderful. Yeah, because I'm, you know, when I'm writing, I'm also, at some point, entering this dream of that story, and pushing it along. I mean, yes. I'm very conscious of what I'm doing, but I'm also unconscious. I'm mm. just, I'm trying to enter this dream state, and it takes a good editor to tell you. Your dream just took a bad turn. <laughs> you, know. you went too far with the dream. Exactly. So, you know, you're not objective about what you're doing at all. At least I'm not. And so this moment, you know, to hear this is just very special, very special. Did you know that it's Asian American and Pacific Islander Heritage Month? Macy's is highlighting some really cool AAPI-owned brands right now, like Cardon, Kaja, Amelia George, and Hey Meave. Plus, you can help to support college access and student success when you donate online or round up in-store to APIA scholars. APIA is the nation's leading nonprofit organization devoted to the academic, personal, and professional success of Asian American, Native Hawaiian, and Pacific Islander students. Shop Asian American and Pacific Islander-owned brands at Macy's.com or in-store. The next generation of influential Black voices can be found on NPR's new collection, Black Stories, Black Truths. Black Stories, Black Truths is a celebration of blackness from NPR. Each of NPR's black voices are as distinct, varied, and nuanced as the black experience itself. In the Black Stories, Black Truths collection, you'll hear stories of joy, resilience, empowerment, and creating world-shifting things out of struggle. Every episode is a living account about what it means to be black today, told from a unique black perspective. From Bobby Shmurda to The Wire, Michelle Obama to Reparations, there's no limit to the range of Black stories, Black truths. Black perspectives haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story. Now they are the story. In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes celebrating the Black experience. Stories should never be about us without us. Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR, wherever you get podcasts. So... One of the things that you shared with me that I thought was gave such insight into who you are, listeners, I think those of you, particularly Super Soul listeners, will appreciate this, is that you have a group of buddies, I think there are five of you, who meet on a regular basis. And it's sort of your checkup group. It's, tell us about it. It's actually, we call it a prayer group. A prayer group. And it began with three men, one of whom has passed away They've been meeting for almost 45 years. Mm -hmm. And they were brought together, business competitors, some you know, very powerful men. They were brought together by their pastor who said, powerful men have no one to hold them accountable. Wow. And sort of made them come together. I met them many years later when- Ain't that the truth? Can we just stop with that for a moment? P powerful men have no one to make them accountable. Yeah. And they very rarely get told the truth. Exactly. Right. They yeah. get told whatever is the agenda that's going to work best for whoever's presenting that's it. That's right. Yes. So one of those brothers, as I call them, and we open with a prayer, we close with a prayer. That's about the extent of, you know, the, the prayer side of things. One of the men, I took care of his uh, spouse and we became very close. And he invited me into the group at a time when I was going through my own struggles. Mm -hmm. And it's become the most important group in my life. And... Uh, we are very capable of being deceitful with each other, and we're also very good at smelling out when someone is holding something back. Um, so it's a great place to vent. It's a great place to go for, for uh, you know, for sustenance uh, during tough times. Mm -hmm. I remember there was a time when I'd gone through a difficult period, and I'd held something back. No, I'd been deceitful with my brothers. Mm -hmm. Not the first time that any of us had done that. Deceitful in that I'm not telling you all. By 
by letting them believe something that wasn't true mm -hmm. until it was sort of true and exposed. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I was very ashamed and, you know, embarrassed as to what I would say next to them. And one of them wrote me a fairly scolding email, which I deserved. But then another one called me up and he said in his beautiful Texas drawl, Abraham, we don't meet because we're holy men. We meet because we're deeply flawed men. Mm. What is the most they've taught you? I think that how, how easily I can be steered in the wrong direction, you mm -hmm. know, mm -hmm. without being aware of it. And it's only in telling it the way you want to portray it. You know, we're very good at painting pictures of how we think this fact in our life is evolving. And it takes someone who cares for you and doesn't really care if they offend you mm -hmm. to call you on it. And so that's been the, the best thing. When I was going through uh, a, a marital difficulty and about to divorce, without my asking them, three of them showed up. They flew from Texas to California to just check in on me. Wow. And uh, I couldn't get over that. I mean, and one of them, when they have issues, I don't, I, I'll drop everything in a heartbeat and I'll go back to see them if they need me. Powerful men holding each other accountable. Indeed. Yeah. So we're at the beginning of part five. The arrival of Uplift Master and his wife, Shashama, coincides with the population reading more. And there are more newspapers, and we see that things are changing in the community. And Uplift Master says, knowledge combats poverty. When he and Philippos set up the feeding station, they quote Gandhi. I love this quote. You remember it? I do remember it. I also love Uplift Master. He's such a, <laughs> I love Uplift Master. I just I entertain myself creating him and the things he would come up with. Especially that speech that we're going to get to yes, later indeed. on. Okay. Uh, may I just say also, in talking about the beginning of part five, um, I love the little drawings, uh, the little pencil drawings. I was going to ask you about those. Yeah, so, you know... Well, it's not just there. It's at, at every part. At every part. Every part has its own drawing. Yeah, every part Beginning has at drawing. the very beginning. Yeah, because when my mother left this legacy of this wonderful notebook in her handwriting, she also had quick sketches. I don't think she spent more than seconds on them. Mm -hmm. But because she had real artistic talents, they came out pretty well. Mm -hmm. So my cousin, Thomas Verghese, mm -hmm. spelt with a V-A instead of a V-E, mm -hmm. because these are phonetic spellings. Uh, I asked him if he would do this, and he's a very talented pencil artist, and uh, these are his beautiful sketches. I wanted to point them out to the listener, and they were very carefully selected with, you know, with the theme of that section in mind. So how would he do it? He would read each, each section, or did he read the whole book? He'd read the whole book. Yes, read the whole book, and we'd... Uh, there's one uh, which we're coming to further on in the Maraman Convention. Yes. Um, but that, That's where the two of them are coming out together. Uh, it's actually two women yes. in the foreground. That is taken from a family photograph, and that is my, essentially my paternal grandmother sitting in that chair. And so, you know, it's sort of a little inside uh, tribute to these remarkable women. Uh, not every reader will know that. They'll know that now. Well, of course, I thought it was Bigamachi and... Uh, Mariama, I thought that was. Yeah, not quite, but it's, you know, it's, uh, it's sort of a personal inside little secret that we, we delighted in. Well, I love this Gandhi quote, that there are people in the world so hungry that God cannot appear to them except in the form of food. So how have you seen literacy alter patterns of life that have been unchanged for generations? You know, I think about that question when I was opening my school in South Africa, uh, one of the things that impressed me, there were so many girls who I interviewed would say, I want to come to your school because I want to break the, the chain of poverty in my family. So how have you seen literacy alter those chains or those patterns? Well, I think uh, Kerala itself, the state of Kerala, is a prime example because uh, right now it is the most literate state in the country. It's like 99% literacy. And that translates into you know, better education, mm -hmm. just a more awareness. It also translates into sort of a contentious, combative community at times because they're all reading the paper and they're all very opinionated. But I think the most important way it translates in medicine for, for, you know, visibly is people understand the notion of prevention. They understand how things are transmitted and how do you get that information out except through 
newspapers and so on. So Uplift Master is way ahead of his time. Mm. Uh, and was he patterned or modeled after someone you knew or you just he just came to you? Yeah, I think within the spectrum of Malayali yeah. behaviors and characteristics, and there are many. One is to be very critical, another is to be very silent, like my dad. Mm -hmm. So I don't quite know where I got this, but he's an amalgamation of some of the more delightful qualities that people have met. Let's talk about the silence and the role that silence plays, actually, in this book, particularly with, with Philippos and with uh, was, was her husband, Amachin. Amachin. Yes. And how so, much is, so many things are spoken that are not actually spoken, that are unsaid in mm -hmm. silence. Well, I think um, I, I picked the condition, the particular disease that uh, is the conceit of the book for reasons that it made you predisposed to drowning, but it also comes with deafness. And I'm not sure I was consciously thinking of that when I picked the disease, but I could really relate to that symptom because in the last decade, especially my hearing, which, uh, you know, we have in, in our family, we have, my mom had a real hearing problem, so does my older brother, but it really deteriorated. And I, uh, during COVID, I found myself particularly challenged when people were wearing masks because I didn't realize how much I was lip reading. So I felt very, very sort of identified strongly with Philippos and his father and their, and their deafness. I was really able to write from from a perspective of deep, deep sympathy and understanding. And then I was writing in great silence, in great solitude. And I'm just sort of struck by the power of silence. And I've tried to use that in this book. Uh, there were scenes, for example, when, when Big Amachi, uh, her husband comes back from a long journey and she takes his hand and rests it on his, her stomach, something very uncharacteristic for her to do. She doesn't say, you know, I missed my period. I'm none of those things that she yes. say. Guess she what? Just, guess what? Yeah. She just puts his hand there. And he has a gasp of surprise, but doesn't have to say everything that you would expect him to say. I yes, kind of that's amazing. Neither of them speak in that moment. I know. I mean, I think that there's something beautiful about the space between raindrops, the space between words, the space between things. And I think too often in our modern life, we don't give space for things like like that that don't need to be said. They just need to be experienced. Yeah, I love that scene so much. I actually know what part that's on page sixty-three, as I recall. Yes, that's he leads. He heads to his bed, too tired to even carry his lamp. She follows him past the threshold of his room. She's rarely in there without his leading her in. She lies next to him. She takes his hand and puts it on her belly and smiles at him. He's puzzled and ever so slowly understanding shows on his weary features and he smiles. She hears a low <gasps> exclamation and he squeezes her to him but then catches himself, fearful of being too rough in his embrace. If God gave her one moment in time that she could stretch out for as long as she lives, this would be it. Until you just said that though, I didn't, I didn't register that no one spoke. No one spoke, I would have ruined it if I put dialogue in there, ah, you know? And I find that in my life, um, being more silent, being forced into some silence, has made me very, very attentive um, to the nuances of people's gestures and actions. And, you know, it's very common for people, people's words to be in conflict with what their body's telling me, you know, or their mannerism suggests. Mm. So, yes. Is there such a thing as a traveler? Not a Delta, because we know on one flight, Mike in 8C prefers reality TV to reality. So we provide more than 1,000 hours of in-flight entertainment. While on the flight after, 8C is occupied by Jen, whose favorite snack is tea. That's why we provide fast, free Delta Sync Wi-Fi available for SkyMiles members, because at Delta, we know. Refill? Everyone flies their own way. Delta, keep climbing. Free Wi-Fi available on most domestic flights. Terms of use apply. Everybody loves McDonald's fries. So, yes, you accused your mom of stealing some of your fries on the way home. Um, but the bag did feel a little light. Ba -da -ba -ba -ba. 
How would you describe Bigamachi's relationship with God? Because after Pyramville becomes that uh, district village, she's proud of her husband's vision, and she asks God if her husband can see it. And on page 300, you say, generally God is silent. But on this night, she hears God speak to her as clearly as he did to Paul on the road to Damascus. <laughs> Your husband does see it. He sees you. He's smiling. So what was her relationship with God? I mean, it felt like, well, you, you tell us. I think I was molding her relationship with God on my grandparents especially. Mm -hmm. But even my parents, you know, my parents were, my father was, uh, helped the priest, an altar boy in a particular church. He got married in that church. His parents are buried in that church, as is his brother. And now from Boston, late at night on Saturday, thanks to the internet, He's watching the service in that same church, you know. Mm. There's sort of a faithfulness that is, you know, marvelous. It's also somewhat unquestioning. And mm -hmm. so my grandparents, my grandmother, on both sides, they were both faithful. I don't think they ever doubted the existence of God like their grandchildren might have. They didn't always understand God. They didn't especially understand him when tragedy, tragedy befell them. Yes. But they bided their time and they kept their faith with God. And they used language like this, that God had said to them to do this and to mm. do that. And I think that if you're, if you're receptive, then you do believe that you've been spoken to. Absolutely. And so I was conveying that, you know, as earnestly as I could. In my mind, Big Amici, God doesn't speak to her very often, but when he does, it's crystal clear. When Philippos goes off to school, he suddenly, not suddenly, but he learns something about himself. And you write, deafness, that word feels like a cudgel blow to the back of his head. Call him inattentive. Say he's unfit, unmotivated, but not that. I'm not deaf, he's saying to himself. Why was it so interesting? Because you just revealed that you have had hearing loss over the past decade. Was it difficult to admit that at first or to say that out loud at first? Yeah, I think it was very difficult. For I mean, you? I, for me and for, I think, anybody with hearing loss. You know, as a society, uh, as we age, um, our visual, our vision, our vision changes. Mm -hmm. But we all accept that. Right. You know, but some degree of hearing loss is probably just as common. Mm -hmm. But for some reason, it's a bigger blow to our vanity to admit that we have hearing loss. And uh, mine came fairly early in life. I was in my late 40s, 50s, and I had to acknowledge that I couldn't hear the back of the lecture hall when a student said something, but others could. And so then you have to wear the hearing aids. And I spent a lot of energy, I think, even with hearing aids, trying to act like, now I'm on par with you because I've got these aids. But you know, the, the human ear is an absolute miracle. And when there are 50 people talking around, I can focus on you with normal hearing and filter that out without even thinking about it. Uh, and, you know, the best a little hearing aid squeaking in your ear can do is imitate that with a very, with a degree of crudeness that doesn't quite come close. And so I, I, I found personally, I was spending a lot of time and a lot of, I, I was investing a lot of nervous energy in trying to pretend I wasn't struggling. So, all right, so there's some of you, your story, and Philippos' story. It's one of the few instances where I really feel like I inserted my story into the book. I mean, I resist it when people tell me I did that elsewhere, but there... Uh, there I you see, did. Yes. You were Philippos at the back of the theater, at the back of the classroom, not yeah. being able to hear what was being said up front. Yes. Yes. So why was Philippos so resistant to the truth about his ability? I think it's the nature of hearing loss. It's the sense that, you know, this is not my feeling. This is because you're not speaking loud enough. You're not speaking clearly. You muffle your voice. In fact, my sons famously will tell you that I told them for years that they are not speaking clearly and they're not speaking loud enough, which is my way of dealing with the fact that I couldn't Yeah, it's, saying it's your fault, not it's mine. Fault. You need to speak. Well, it's interesting that he said, call me inattentive say I'm unfit, say I'm unmotivated, that I'd rather be called many other things but to call me deaf. What felt like, for lack of a better, a handicap, right? Well, the, load, the word deaf is really quite loaded in any community. 
but the translation of deafness in, in Malayalam is, you know, it implies that you're more than deaf. It, it almost seems to go with deaf and dumb, you know? Mm. So there's a pejorative aspect Oh, to, I see. I, I, know, just, I just got it. Okay. I think it's probably true here also. There's an implication that these people are other in some mm. way when, you know, being part of the other now, I, I feel I completely understand why there's, you know, sensitivity around that. So hearing impaired is great. It doesn't still, it doesn't restore your hearing, but it makes you feel a little better about what's going on than to be labeled deaf. I love the moment when he is actually able to confess and he goes to the bookseller to give up his books because now he can't be in college anymore. And he makes the confession and the bookseller listens to him. He confesses and didn't even know he was going to do that. Feels better afterwards, just as you were just sharing. And the bookseller goes on to say something so powerful that success is not money. Success is you are fully loving what you are doing. You say it in his voice. Yeah, you got to say it with the yes. accent. Success is not money. Success is you are fully loving what you are doing. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> <laughs> I've had such fun doing the audiobooks for phrases like that where I was pretty yes. sure I could do that better than... Anybody. Most other narrators yeah, here. Absolutely. <laughs> so when did you learn these lessons yourself? When did you learn that? Oh, Oprah, I, I think I learned them painfully through life. You know, uh, how else does one learn anything except by, <laughs> I know. by being, you know, by tripping up on your own, on your own uh, mistakes? But you already knew it because you had shared with us at the beginning of our conversations that you recognized in the medical profession that choosing infectious disease you were not going to be like a lot of the other doctors who had their own private practices or who were surgeons or neurosurgeons and that you weren't going to make money looking at infectious diseases. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think there's this purest streak in me that, you know, I had a wonderful mentor, Steve Burke, who was an infectious disease person. And all I thought about is I want to be like him. He was just a master clinician. He had a great way of thinking. And I was introduced to a whole lineage of people like that. Mm -hmm. And the nice thing about infectious disease physicians is we're not confined to one organ. You know, we see patients who have problems from you know, meningitis to toe infections, nor are we confined to the internal medicine department. You know, we're called to see obstetric infections, pediatric wow. infections. Okay. So I just, that appealed to The whole to body. Me. Yeah, the breadth of it appealed to me. And the purist in me thought, you know, I'm going to follow my passion. I've done that all along. I'm going to do it now. And I don't regret it. I mean, so I may have regretted it when HIV came along. Everybody looked at you like, you poor sucker, you picked the wrong field, you know. <laughs> I picked the right field. I'm not, I wouldn't be here talking to you had I picked some other field. Mm. I might have been rich. I might have, you know, have a great equity and a retirement prospects. I wouldn't be here talking to you. Well, I'm glad you picked the right field. I'm glad I picked it too. On the train back to Parambil, Filippo sits with a group of people, and they're from a variety of castes. And in Chapter 42, all getting along, on page 331, Arjun says, Half my life is spent on trains. Strangers of all religions, all castes, getting on so well in a compartment. Why not same outside train? Why not simply all getting along? Mm. <laughs> I, I like that so much because I remember that same thing when Rodney King was beaten by the police officers and one of the uh, clips of him on TV, he was saying, why can't we all just get along? Exactly. Yeah. Can we all get along? Can we, can we get along? Um, can we stop making it, making it horrible for, for, the, for the older people and the, and the, and the, and the kids? I mean, I thought I was thinking of Rodney King. In fact, you were thinking of Rodney King when you wrote. I mean, it? to some degree, that's yes. right. I was using his exact lines, and I think my editor and I debated and said, you know, we can't do that. We can't use his lines without taking something away from that iconic that, that, statement. That, yes. You know? uh, but I must say that the context for this for me was I've had some memorable train rides from Madras to my grandparents and back, and it's amazing. It's like you enter this world, you all are either completely lying about your backgrounds or for whatever reason you, you suspend who you are and you enter this community of very different religions and 
Because right. even if you're a different caste, you can all still sit together. It's not like it was in the United States where, yeah. as a black person, you had to go to the back of the bus. Right. So no, all castes can sit together. All castes sit together. I mean, and then this forced confinement together, there's a bonding that is actually quite beautiful. So Shamuel, who is a Pulyan, could have sat on that same train? He could have sat on the train. Now, maybe an upper caste person might have objected, but his only recourse would have been not to get on the train. He could not have... Uh, you know, because if Shamil, he couldn't have made him get off the train. No, because if Shamil bought a ticket, then you know that was his right. Um, so yeah. You know, so this is in public places. You, you are allowed to do that, and yeah, yet Shamil wouldn't come into the house. Well, so you know that this is so Shamil and Philippos is going on a train in a slightly different time yeah. period than when we first meet Shamil, uh, but Shamil could certainly have gotten on the train. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And on that train, Philippos <laughs> falls in love with Elsie, and later they marry. On their wedding night, Philippos has, I love this line. This is from page 364, y'all. Would you like to read that? I like that. 364. Lord, he thinks, once you discover this, how is it possible to do anything else? I thought that was so interesting. <laughs> there they are, both virgins on their wedding night. Is that usually the case? Yes. Yes. Commonly the case. Not yeah. still. Oftentimes, I would say. Really? Yeah. Still? I mean, it's less and less true, but m my point is that a girl is rarely going to put herself in a situation that compromises her prospects for an arranged marriage, if that's her intention. Mm -hmm. uh, if she's working in the big city and you know, dating, it might be a completely different story. Yeah. But in the era when I married, uh, you know, in, in, in India, it would have been largely true. Largely true. So the morning after their wedding, Elsie asks Philippos, Ugh, is it plavu? Yes. Cut down the plavu tree so that she can see the morning light. And on page 367, you write, but already he feels the fissure, the seam in their union. What did the tree represent to Philippos? I think it represented, at one level, materially, he had written this column about the tree, and it had become sort of a, you know, a thing with his readers, and so it had inflated his ego. I think it's, uh, you know, at the second level, it's more, as you said, it's much more than the tree and what it means. It's a sense of seeding authority. If I give this into this, what else am I giving into? What? Yeah. Really? I know it's it's a, it's absurd, but you know. No, I but think... he had just said, "I will do anything. <laughs> Ask me anything, I will do it. Ask me anything, I will do it." Well, clearly, he had been disingenuous in that question. He had wanted to say, "Ask me anything," but really, ask me for something that'll make me look even grander in your eyes. Okay. Instead of that was his intention. You know, ask me anything; it might really cost me. Yeah, I get that. So his intention was, ask me something that's going to make me look better to you. Exactly, make me feel like this, you yeah. know, the, 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 um, the man who built the Taj Mahal, Emperor yes, Shah yes, Jahan, yes, yes, you know, yes, yes, this yes. is me. So, after procrastinating for years, Philippos only partially cuts down that plavo tree, as you all know. And in chapter 48, Rain Gods, on page 393, you write... Soon the air is thick with the sick, clawing smell of ripe jackfruit. Once the others are gone, Shamuel and Jopan stare at what's left, a thick, tall trunk with dagger-like arms and fingers, a malevolent goddess. Sarah, I hear you have a question about this very moment. Hi, my name is Sarah, and I have a question about part six, specifically about the relationship between Philippos and Elsie. It seems that Philippos is ready. He declares to Begamachi that he wants her to contact the broker and he even ensures that Elsie is ready for marriage. And everything seems blissful and romantic in the beginning. And then Elsie asks him to cut down the tree. And can see there's a change in Philippos and he wants to be so badly who Elsie wants him to be and yet he struggles and you can see the inner workings of his mind through your writing about his struggles. And I'm just curious if there's something about the human condition here or specifically about relationships or if there's something about Philippos 
that he can't seem to follow through with his actions and behaviors to be who Elsie wants him to be. Yeah. Thank you. Great question. Great question, Sarah. Well, I, th I think that I'm perhaps being a little autobiographical here in the sense that when you meet and marry, fall in love, you're projecting your best self forward. And there's always this moment when this, when this caricature of yourself that you've put forward, if you've not been authentic, yeah. which when you're, when you're young, you rarely are. You don't even know you're not being authentic. You, mm -hmm. you put forward this persona mm -hmm. and somebody responding to, somebody is responding to that persona. And then there are these moments of truth where who you are comes in conflict with the persona that they had every reason to believe you were. And I think I was trying to sort of play with that. I mean, it happens both ways. Where, mm -hmm. Of so, course. You know, we, we, we do put our best selves forward. And, you know, I, for one, like the idea of people living together for a time because I think you, you have to be sure you love the real person you're with, mm -hmm. not some projection you have of them and the projection they have of you. So I suppose, in a way, that scene, that moment was about, you know, marrying young and discovering in well, a painful not, way who you yeah, really are. Yeah. What is was so painful about it? She, she married him because she thought he would allow her to be her authentic self, would allow her yeah. to have her own choices, certainly when it comes to her art. And then immediately he showed that he was the opposite. Exactly. I mean, she has a line in there which, you know, forgive me, I kind of like. She says, Philippos, what is it about you? But every time you think you're giving, yeah. you're actually taking away. You know? Yes, 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 yes. One of the most gut-wrenching moments in this story is the loss of little Dynam. And I was, I mean, I don't know about you all, but... I had to read that thing three times. In chapter 49, The View, on page 399, you write, Nainan's midsection is the world's caved in, a dark pit of horror, the center of a universe that has betrayed a child, betrayed the mother, father, and grandmother, and all who loved him, everything that belonged to the small body, Breath and pulse and voice and thought is gone and is dead, is beyond dead. One of the things I'll never get out of my mind is this image of Philippos jumping from the tree and running on his broken ankles um, with his son's body. Um, Dorian, I heard you have a question about this and death. Hi, my name is Dorian. And I truly enjoyed reading this amazing book and getting to know all the complex and unique characters. What was difficult for me as a reader was when these characters, oftentimes tragically, die within the book. I was wondering, as an author, how do you go about this process? Do you know in advance when your characters are going to die? Or do you figure this out as you're writing the book? Thank you. Thanks, Dorian. Yeah, that's a great question. I, I don't. I, I think um, what I do know is if I'm writing about three generations, since life is a terminal condition and we're all mortal, I do know characters are going to die, but I don't. I didn't really know when or exactly how or whether they die prematurely. So a lot of this seems to come to me as I'm writing, and mm -hmm. um, you know, I think. Uh, I wish I had kept better track of when these things occurred. I didn't know Oprah was going to ask me or her <laughs> readers. Uh, but my sense is that they, it had happened organically. I, I was aware there was going to be a rift in the marriage. I was going to be, I was aware. Because there needed to be a rift in the marriage. Although if the marriage is just perfectly fine, then yeah. why are we reading it? Yes. Yeah, I mean, I think that the rift comes about because of this unexpected death and the blame that plays both ways. No, the rift starts when the he doesn't, when he doesn't yes, cut the exactly. tree. The rift starts when he broke his word. Right. And he knows that. And, and the tree is responsible. Yes, um, absolutely. So some of that, some of this might be things that once I knew the scope of the whole book, which was very late in the game, I suspect, 
then I would go back and, you know, make sure these things echoed and connected. But, um, but to answer mm -hmm. Dorian's uh, question, you know, I think uh, I probably am more aware of mortality than many um, other people are because of the kind of work I do. I'm, I'm in a business where we see people frequently at the mm -hmm. end of their lives. And I think that's not a bad thing. It makes life feel more poignant when you ac accept that it's going to end. And I think we often live in a society that's full of denial. And you look at all the television, you know, movie scenes, there's a lot of, you know, unrealistic violence and nobody dies. Whereas in reality, the most trivial accidents result in death, it seems to me, unfortunately. And so I, I think I'm just portraying what has impressed me, that this is much more common than you think. Well, and also, when my best friend Gail was calling me and saying, I can't believe Jojo died, and now 99, I said, they have the condition, you were told at the beginning of the story that every generation has had a drowning of some kind. There's been some accident. So to be surprised that it's happening to me is like, well, we know the condition is gonna affect people somehow. And you, 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 I think we all thought, oh, it means you have to actually be in the water. But the condition has yeah. many other manifestations. I must say, I mean, just to add to the, the answer, I don't want the reader ever to think that that I wrote this callously to shock him. Yeah. It was very painful. Um, it was perhaps every time I would revise that section uh, or proofread it or do anything with it or even read the audiobook, I would be in tears. In fact, during the audiobook, we were all in tears. The, the producer, the sound engineer, the three of us were <laughs> reaching for Kleenex and I had to go back to a couple of sentences because you know, if, if it was really painful for me to, as, you know, as a father to picture this moment, I couldn't picture it. Mm. So the whole community comes out to mourn him. Yeah. And in chapter 49, The View, whew, on page 400, you say this. Samuel gathers the little Thumbaran's body into his arms and 10 other hands help old Samuel rise. Brothers, one and all, Every barrier of caste and custom erased in the terrible solidarity imposed by death. It's so interesting that this death inspires a kind of solidarity and erases caste for the moment mm -hmm. in the community. Is that what usually happens? Was that? I'm not sure. I, I, I don't know that what I conjured up would be the mm -hmm. rule by any means. But Shemuel was more than, you know, a lower caste mm. worker in the community. He was family in he a was sense. Family. And he was also now the oldest in a sense, the, one of the elders of the mm -hmm. family. But as a child visiting my grandparents, I was always impressed by the great dignity of those who were doing manual labor that I saw around. Mm -hmm. You know, there was, they, they, were, they strove for perfection. There was a grace about them that eclipsed those who ordered them around in a way. And so as I began to develop this character of Shemuel, in that scene, it just seemed organic that he would gather this baby. He would restore some dignity to the indignity of this terrible, terrible tragedy. And uh, uh, that would move me more than anything almost, to that image of him. I know. The broken body and the unbroken old man. Uh, mm. Marching back as though he's wearing ceremonial uniform instead of this rag around his waist because they, you know, they caught him at a odd moment and yeah, it just seemed right. It just seemed right. As a writer, there are moments when you come to something, you know, it's right. Yeah. We also know, know in that moment when, when Philippos jumps from the tree and breaks both of his ankles and is running with the body, he's never going to be okay or it's going to, what it's going to take for him to be okay. Right. Yeah. He's shattered because he knows it was his fault. Yes. And it was his fault. He doesn't know at that moment. He blames his wife, uh, you know. But he blames his wife because he knows he it's knows his fault. Exactly. Does he not? Exactly, yeah. Okay, so, yeah. Let's move on to part six. A 
pregnant woman, Lizzie, shows up with her baby's fist poking through her stomach, and her delirious husband has slashed her with a knife. Another image readers will not forget anytime soon. Where did that come from? <laughs> that little fist poking out. Had you seen that I actually, somewhere? No, but I have a story about okay, that. Okay, good. I was a student in Madras Medical College, and uh, I would park my motorcycle for three years, two years of medical school and internship there, under the same statue at the front of the medical school. It was a little place to hide my motorcycle, along with many other motorcycles. There was a statue there covered in pigeon droppings. I never paid any attention to it or who it was about. And as I was researching this book and looking up something about the medical school, come to find out this was a very dynamic surgeon of that era, an Indian in colonial times, who was the best surgeon around. And uh, even the governor, the white folks, would all want him to do the surgery. He had a Rolls Royce before anybody else had a Rolls Royce. He, was, he had this in-your-face quality about his skills. And by the legend has it that he was called to this outside emergency room or casualty where a woman had been stabbed and a child had the hand sticking out and he grabbed a cigarette. So that is a borrowed scene if the, if the story is true. So you, that's one of those things you put in your back pocket and you just oh, held that. Oh, yeah. And you just held that memory I just there held on to that. Held yeah. that memory. Okay. After nine and dies... Elsie leaves Philippos, you all know this, to live with her father. And may I just say, this was one amazing Ba Felicia moment in chapter 49, The View. On page 403, you tell us, in the next instant, she looks right through him. Just as for years, she looked through that plavu, pretended that its ugliness wasn't there and that her view was unobstructed. At that moment, she has made him vanish wiped him off her canvas so that what's left is a smeared surface that holds the false lines, the figure that did not come out right, the erroneous strokes of a marriage, and a world botched beyond repair, and not what she ever imagined. She brushes past him, bumping him aside with her shoulder, the hollow, invisible, less than ordinary man, the husband who isn't there as she gathers a few things. He hears doors opening and closing. Then he hears her say to someone, let's go. That is the best Bye Felicia moment I ever read. (laughs) (laughs) Goodbye Felicia. That's a common expression. Wow. Bye, Felicia. Yeah. I got to remember that. Bye, Felicia. Bye, Felicia. (laughs) 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 Did you spend a lot of time with that one? I think I did. As you were reading it, my reaction was, I wrote that? Yeah, Yeah. you did. You did. And, uh, but it, you know, as as I said, it doesn't come out in one pass. It's many, 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 many passes. Bye, Felicia. Bye, Felicia. (laughs) You out of here. Brother, I'm gone. <laughs> that is, no, I mean, it's, it's just really, if it was a song, Beyonce talk would be Talk to the saying, hand. Yeah, talk to the hand. Talk to, talk to my hand. No, I think, what is the line at that moment? She's made him vanish, wiped him off her canvas. Wow. So that's what's left is a smeared surface that holds the false lines. The figure that didn't come out right. I don't even know what to say about that. You can write. You can I write. I don't know what to say about that, but I, I did it. <laughs> you, so, you did it. Yeah. But many, many revisions, but it came out there. Did you ask yourself or ever in this writing process that if Philippos was going to survive the addiction? Because after this, he's in, in, into his addiction. Yeah, I knew that he had to come back whole in some way. Mm-hmm. I didn't know it very clearly till I had the whole structure, but I, I think I did know that he had to redeem himself. Mm. You know, he had to he had to eventually atone for being such a stupid ass, you know, mm. in his in his marriage in his life, you know. Yeah. Well, I think Karen, you have a question about this. 
Hi, Oprah. Hi, Dr. Vigis. It's Karen in New York. And my question or comment is on part six, pages 428 and 29, where Philippos and Elsie come together again after being months apart, after the tragic death of their son, Ninon. Oh, my gosh. And I love how respectful Philippos is when he and Elsie are being intimate together for the first time after being months apart. And I have my book right here. And Dr. Begeese writes, he gently draws her down to lie in the bed, not forcing her. His lips on hers, but hesitantly. He doesn't want to force himself on her. He will stop if she distresses. Now, here is a married man who is asking consent of his own wife. And that's not common, especially in those days and especially in a lot of old world countries. And I was wondering if this was in light of the Me Too movement, if this was a conscious part of Dr. Verghese, that we become a society because we're, we are human, we are influenced by what we read, see, and hear, that consensuality becomes part of the norm. And I applaud Dr. Regis for doing this, for writing this. And I would love for you and Oprah to discuss this. Thank you. Well, I mean, that was actually a very difficult scene to write uh, because in my mind, he was taking advantage of her. It was, in my mind, it was clear that she did not want this. She happened to be trying to get her clothes out and he grabs her. And I think in the first few revisions, it was a rape in the sense that she did not want this. Uh, she may not have protested and maybe she could have effectively pushed him off if she wanted to. But as we find out later in the chapter, she might have had an ulterior motive, so to speak. Oh, I didn't think that at all. What did you think? I didn't think that at all. I thought that she agreed to that sexual encounter because she knew she was already pregnant. Yes, exactly. That's and right. that this would be her way of, you know, letting everybody think that it was, was his child. But what I also couldn't understand, and later we found out that he always knew, um, and I think the only reason he was so okay with knowing is because by that time he was in love with his daughter. He loved Mariama. But I, what I couldn't figure out is why big Amachi, Amachi would not have known that she was also pregnant when she showed up. I didn't mean, I didn't know what month it was. I couldn't figure out what month she would have been or obviously she wasn't showing, showing, but I think she laid down with him. I don't think it was a rape at all. Yeah, so in my mind, I, I completely agree with you. In my mind, she did didn't want to take go, back the rape part. She didn't go into that room trying to coax him into intercourse. But the moment he grabbed her hand, you can perhaps infer that her mind was whirring, thinking, I don't know where this is going to lead. He says, sit down, then he says this. But if it happens, since she's just come to realize she's uh, pregnant, mm -hmm. it's not a bad thing. Right. Um, and he's still her husband. And he's still her husband. But in my mind, it was, I wanted, and may I fail to, to convey this, or at least I wanted to put doubt around it so that it, would, it wouldn't be that she mercenarily went, went in and found for that. him. And, yeah. So I had to write this many different times because you know, I had some of my uh, women reader, editor, advisors who felt it was a, uh, it was a rape scene. And it was not my intention to, to have him rape her. It was more like he was drug-addled and, and he's lustful and she is conflicted, not sure whether she wants to say no or let it happen. And so she kind of lets it happen is, is how I meant it. Well, okay, I thought you just said it was rape. Did I not hear you say that you thought it was rape? When I initially wrote it, mm -hmm. it, was meant, it, it came out strongly as a rape scene. Okay, it was initially rape. It You're not saying that it's rape now. It's not rape now, but it, it's not as though she explicitly consents to this or came seeking this, you know? Um, there are signs he of He cups her. her breasts, circles the nipples with his fingers. He can hardly contain himself. Her eyes are closed, tears leaking from the corners, and he understands. She's crying, okay, in that moment. He go. thinks she's crying because, oh my, she's missed me, she wants to be with me, she's, you know, this is going to be an amazing moment. Uh, 
because how can this not remind them of Nainan? She doesn't resist, nor does she reach for him as in the days of old. And then he thinks, it's all right, my love, it's all right, I'll do all the work. Isn't this what we need, the balm of Gilead, the cure for what ails us? That doesn't feel like rape at all to me. But we're in, we're in his head, this guy who's hooked on opium. So he's a bit of an unreliable narrator. This is how he chooses to see it. Okay. This is what we need, you know. We're not in her head, so we don't really know what he's th she's thinking, and the reader has to infer that. Okay, so once you're in his head, you don't have to go to her head. Is that what... Well, I mean, I haven't at this point. Yes. So you're left, the reader's left with that information, you know? Yes, okay. So at one point... Also, I'm not in as much control as I, <laughs> as I think or you think in terms of what's, what the effect is going to be on the reader. You can clarify this for us. Did Elsie know she was already pregnant when she had sex with Philippos? In my mind, yes. Okay. Yes. But to answer the earlier part of your question, Big Amici didn't necessarily know. Big Amici would have suspected when Elsie gives birth, just by the timing of it being a little earlier than she had anticipated. Mm -hmm. But she certainly didn't know when Elsie walked in to the house, nor did Elsie know. Uh, only by being delayed by that long during the monsoon did all this become evident. Mm -hmm. so. All right. But earlier, when she's pregnant with Nainan, Bigamachi says, you know, when she, and she goes off to see her father, she chastises Philippos for saying, didn't you know she was, she was with child? Yeah. yeah, I mean, perhaps she would have spotted it, but that's still a little bit later. You at least have to okay. miss one period and, you know, yeah. before you start getting discoloration of your cheeks. And there's a few other telltale signs. So I think even that comes a little bit later. Okay. Elsie gives birth to a healthy girl named Mariama after the baby's grandmother, Bigamachi. And just weeks later, Elsie disappears after bathing in the river. I can't tell you how many times I studied your cousin's drawing. I went back <laughs> to that drawing. Oh, he'll be so happy to hear that. <laughs> yes. I went back to Thomas. Thomas. I went back to Thomas's drawing and I'd read the passages again and then I'd go back to the drawing. The clothes are folded too neatly for somebody who just was going to step into the water. The, folds, the clothes are too neat. Thank you, Thomas, for that. Really well done. So before we go, everybody, I just wanted to listen to one more passage from the ending of part six because it's just so beautiful. This comes after Bigamachi finds the drawing that Elsie left by the river bank of a newborn baby and a woman who looks just like herself. In chapter 56, Missing, on page 464, Bigamachi makes this discovery. She tells no one about her find. She guards it jealously. It's a private message from her daughter to her. Every time she sees it, the economy of those lines startles her anew. It could be the Virgin Mary and child. It could be many things. But she knows it's meant to be her, cradling her namesake. She never sees Elsie in it. That rectangular sheet of paper holds the round world and its imagined corners, the remembrances of the disappeared and the dead, and the beating hearts of the faithful who pray each night that God's will be done not knowing what that will be. You'd think that would be the end of the story, but no, there are four more parts, part seven and eight, and the book is coming up in our next episode. So thank you, readers, for your great questions. Bye, everybody. The Covenant of Water. <laughs> Ooh, ciao. I know this novel has made an impact on everyone who reads it, I'd love to hear your thoughts and how it has impacted you. Find us at Oprah's Book Club on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok, and check out Oprah Daily for even more about The Covenant of Water and author Abraham Verghese. A tale that leaves its imprint on a listener. The Covenant of Water audiobook is narrated by the author, Abraham Verghese. It's available now wherever books are sold. Until next time, goodbye, everybody.
At Delta, we know Mike in 8C prefers reality TV to reality. So we provide more than 1,000 hours of in-flight entertainment. On the next flight, 8C is Mandy, a foodie. So we offer all types of food options. Because at Delta, everyone flies their own way. Delta, keep climbing. Everybody loves McDonald's fries. So yes, you accused your mom of stealing some of your fries on the way home. Um, but the bag did feel a little light. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.